Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello, 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 hello. Good afternoon or whenever, whenever you're listening or watching this. Uh, you are live now if you are watching this live. Otherwise, listening to the podcast, thank you very much. Do, do you leave this a review, spread the word, subscribe. And today we are talking about the British Broadcast Corporation, is the national broadcaster, of course. Now, the reason we're having this discussion is because, so the normal, you know, the, one of the very successful roles of a press which is overwhelmingly run of course by a very small group of very very wealthy oligarchs who defend the status quo of course from which they profit is they're very effective at policing the bbc so the general narrative which is spun in this country is that the bbc is a den of dangerous lefties now you often get i suppose a defense of the bbc from some in who call themselves the political center which is based on a logical fallacy, which is the BBC is criticised from the left for being too right-wing and from the right for being too left-wing, and therefore it's got the balance right. Now, that's a logical fallacy. You know, I mean, you know, you could say it about the criminal justice system. The right think it's too punitive, sorry, not punitive enough, uh, whilst the left think it locks too many people up. Therefore, has it got the balance right? Or would you look at the empirical evidence to decide uh and, and and look at the actual facts rather than say just because something is criticized from two different angles i mean we'll talk about that because we've got a great guest today because i think there is an argument that uh as one senior bbc presenter once put it to me that the center of gravity at the bbc is kind of blairite in that it's uh on cultural issues social issues it's liberal whilst politically it's programming on politics is very deferential towards the government, the status quo, and to power. Uh, but these are things we need to talk about. And the reason we're talking about it today, and it's a jumping off point, is that Robbie Gibb, who is the former spin doctor uh, to uh, Theresa May, our former prime minister, uh, has just been appointed to the BBC board. Now, interestingly, of course, Robbie Gibb himself used to run BBC Westminster programming. So you may remember the daily politics, mate, rest in peace. That was, he was in charge of programs like that. And then he was appointed to spin doctor uh, to Theresa May. And he has a very open agenda, which is, he says the BBC is too left wing, too so woke. Um, he helped found GB News. So the BBC uh, have, a, have now on their board someone who quite literally set something up, which is a, a direct assault on the BBC as an institution. Now, Robbie Gibb is not an exception in terms of this revolving door. Uh, David Cameron hired his chief spin doctor, uh, Craig Oliver, who was in charge of, um, again, uh, news, uh, in his case, news programming. Uh, Boris Johnson repeatedly has hired his spin doctors as mayor of London uh, from uh, the BBC. Uh, uh, George Osborne, Thea Osborne, was a senior BBC producer who he hired, again, as his spin doctor. Uh we could go on. There's this revolving door, obviously Robbie Gibb, this revolving door, which itself, if the BBC is a den of lefties, why on earth do the Conservatives keep hiring their senior spin doctors from the upper echelons of BBC political and news programming in this country? doesn't quite square, does it? But we're not just talking about that. We're talking about other issues um, as well as what, we, what do we do? Can the BBC be transformed? Can the media ecosystem in this country be transformed? Because we're often told we have a free press. In a sense, the government doesn't directly control and monopolise all political programming in this country. We're not North Korea. Pretty low bar. But as I've said, we do actually have a media ecosystem dominated by wealthy oligarchs uh, who spend a huge amount of time punching down uh, rather than challenging vested interests, uh, redirecting people's anger against minorities, people who lack 
power, lack a voice, and accepting the assumptions and reinforcing the assumptions of the status quo and menacing and demonizing any ideas or people or movements which threaten that status quo. For those supporting us on Patreon, that's what keeps the channel and the podcast and everything we do uh, on Instagram and Facebook. All of that is kept afloat because obviously I have no idea what I'm doing. And on Patreon, you've helped us, for example, this documentary, which hopefully is coming out tomorrow or Tuesday. I went up to Hartlepool uh, last week to, uh, in advance of the by-election, of course, which is coming up, which is a which is a biggie. Uh, Labour privately have resigned themselves to losing uh, in Hartlepool. We'll see about that. Uh, obviously, Labour have a good get-out-the-vote uh, campaign, which gives them an edge. Oppositions don't lose by-elections. It's only happened twice in the last 50 years. So that's how the stakes are there. But I chatted to the Labour candidate. At first, I was refused permission, but I tweeted about it and then it ended up in newspapers. So they obviously felt a bit embarrassed. But I also interviewed a range of other people, the Northern Independence Party, uh, Reform Party, that used to be the Brexit Party, uh, people on the streets, uh, canvassers and so on, to get a picture of what Hartlepool says uh, about politics, about what's happening in the so-called Red Wall, about Labour's future. So it's a very interesting video, which will be up soon. Uh, so we really appreciate your support on Patreon, forward slash owenjones 84 our brilliant uh, team who are making those incredible videos. Right, that's enough for me. I'm genuinely, generally quite sick of my own voice, so we're going to stop and bring in the brilliant Tom Mills, who is uh, the author of uh, BBC Myth of the Public Service and uh, a journalist, brilliant writer. Hello, Tom. How are you doing? Hi, I'm good, thanks. So let's start with the Robbie Gibb thing, um, because it's a good jumping off point. Um, it obviously was announced last week. Uh, this guy is a very public BBC critic. He actually said, it's quite an, an interesting interview that I saw a few months ago that he did, where he said one of the reasons he joined the BBC in the first place was to combat what he saw as bias. Now, Robbie Gibb, as I've said, mm. is uh, an ardent conservative. He's actually the former before he joined the BBC, just in terms of the revolving door, before he joined the BBC, he worked as chief of staff to Francis Maud, a conservative cabinet minister. His brother is a senior conservative politician uh, who's in charge of the political programming, along with, and of course, work closely with Andrew Neil, who's now setting up GB News, which Robbie Gibb is also involved in. And Andrew Neil, of course, uh, uh, owes so much of his, uh, his prominence and profile to the BBC, which he's now using to challenge the BBC. So what do you think Robbie Gibbs' appointment tells us? Yeah, well, I, I think you've laid it out quite well, actually, in the introduction, in terms of the circulation of the, these groups of people at the top of the BBC. I mean, a, a lot of the claims that get made about the BBC are are based on this sort of Im impressionistic idea of it being, as you said, like a, a den of lefties or, or liberal people who have basically sort of socially conservative views. And then the idea becomes that, you know, that that impacts on their output. Um, and then w when you actually look at the, the people who run the BBC, i.e. not this sort of youth idea of like, oh, well, what are people in general like who work there? And you look at the people who are actually the key decision makers in the organisation, a pretty clear kind of picture emerges. And, and not just in the last 10 years, you know, going back for, for decades, really. I mean, we, we saw this as well in the, the period of new Labour government, a circulation of people who were special advisors or in one way or another involved in political communications, moving in and out of roles at the BBC, whether that was roles in editorial positions or positions in, in policy. So it's that often people, particularly involved in political programming, um, have move in and out of these roles in, in political communications, some, you know, sometimes in Downing Street, like, like Robbie Gibbs, and you mentioned some of the other, some of the other figures earlier. And, and then more broadly, you have people who are involved in political programming and, and the executive and so on. And they're, they're particular types of people, you know, who become from particular types of background. They, they tend to be Oxbridge. They're all, they're, they're very affluent. They tend to be, be paid upwards of £200,000. Um, so these are the kinds of people who are kind of like the decision-making elite of the BBC. Now, I think it's important when we think about the, these decisions that, um, Okay, don't worry about that. I'll sort out in a bit, okay? Sorry. I think he's going oh. in. I want to hear his insights as well, Tom. Come on. <laughs> no, there's, there's, there's been a drink incident. Sorry, everyone. Um, and where was I? Uh, 
yeah, so so th those are the people at the top of the BBC, and they're, they're the decision makers. You know, they're they're kind of the elite of the BBC. And actually, even if you look at their wages, you know, they are in the literal sense like the one percent of the BBC compared to the the, the people who generally work it. So, so it's a large organisation. My work has been really about about two things, two two parts of what the BBC does. One is the kind of yeah the, this this very politicised BBC hierarchy, the decision makers in the BBC, and then and then the other is looking at the kinds of programmes that the BBC produces. Well, why is this important? Well, it's important because um, the the basic idea of the BBC, that these two sort of foundational myths, are that it's independent and that it's impartial. But the but the empirical picture that you get if you examine the BBC, if you examine its history, if you examine the scholarship, there's two really important things that for me stand out. Number one, the, the BBC isn't independent of of the government, let alone the establishment, in in any meaningful sense. Um, and you know that that I think in some ways that that sounds like a controversial opinion, but we can we can go into a bit more detail on that. I just think it's just. That's the empirical picture, right? You mentioned earlier about like, you know, balancing left and right perspectives. Well, my book's not about that. It's about consolidating what the evidence tells us. And I think the evidence on that is quite clear. The, the other element of it is, okay, so what, what's the character of the BBC or at least the character of the parts of the BBC, which, which we're gonna be mainly focusing on because this is a political program. Um, how does that then influence what the BBC does? And what do we know about the BBC's reporting? And what we know about the BBC from, from quite a number of studies is that it doesn't tend to maintain impartiality on, on important issues. The, the powerful interests in society tend to predominate. Those are the voices which dominate its news reporting. Um, the, you know, that, that's complicated and lots of different perspectives do appear, but pretty much every scholarly study will tend to find that yes, it's powerful interests in society which, which, which dominate in in BBC reporting. So where does that leave us? It basically leaves us with one aspect of the BBC being not, not independent and the other not being impartial, both very different to how we think about the BBC. Now, I guess we can talk a little bit about other things, other, other problems with the BBC. One of them certainly is this question of the, the appointments powers that the governments have. So I think understanding the appointment of R Robbie Gibb in that context and, and, and the, other the other appointments that you mentioned, this is one aspect of the BBC, which is, is very problematic because it means that the BBC is not politically independent, right? They, and and that, that's straightforward. And that, that there are other reasons as well. So maybe we can talk about them a bit. Number one, it's funding. Um, it's funding predominant. Most of its funding sources are set by the government, the license fee, right, which is supposed to afford the BBC a degree of independence. And the other is that the BBC's constitution, if you like, its charter, has to be negotiated with the government periodically. So essentially, what what you get at the top of the BBC is this kind of politicised hierarchy that has to think about how the government views it, um, has to develop good relationships with people within government. Um, because it relies on the government for its continued existence, for its funding, and, and then on top of that, you have the fact that these people who are appointed to key decision-making posts tend to be, um, let's say, aligned with the interests of the political establishment. And when you get a very right-wing political establishment, then they tend to be very right-wing people. I think that's what, that's what we're seeing now, you know, very powerful, um, confident, and uh, unscrupulous government, which is just willing to sort of all these public institutions with, with right-wing point men and they tend to be men i guess before we just go and talk about structures a bit more and and uh, what it's a very basic question but it's something which will be on the minds of people which is what what do you think the basis is of when the right argues that the left that the bbc has a left-wing bias of some description what what do you think the basis for that is yeah i mean written about this I mean someone called um, uh, Robin Aitken who's written a few books or like different versions of the same books and and basically his argument is that the BBC ten, as, a, as a sort of collective culture tends to be socially liberal and um, I think you, you know that I mean the, the BBC is a public organization and it has certain requirements to represent the diversity of Britain so like in, in a sense that is structurally something that the BBC is committed to now we could have a conversation about the limitations and, and things that the BBC hasn't achieved in that regard, but the the 
the responsibility for the BBC to, to represent the diversity of, of modern Britain is built into the BBC's constitution, right? Um, there's also, most of his anecdotes come from the Blair period, where I think, I think you're basically right to say that the, the um, and this is more impressionistic than research-based, that the, the kind of political spectrum that the BBC kind of runs from, you know, soft right to, to soft left, basically. Um, it's the, and it's, it's the margins that tend to be maybe a little bit out of step with their broad culture. But then, as we've seen, you get people like Andrew Neil, who are very much of the sort of hard right conservative types. Richard Sharp, who's now been appointed um, as, as, as chair, um, very much figures of the right. So number one, there's this argument. So from episode, there's this argument which tends to be around the idea of like social liberalism. So you know, um, gay rights, uh, equality, like um, racial equality, and these kinds of issues. Um, so the, those sort of cultural stuff that has become very um, a key part of like contemporary sort of conservative uh, noise and, and uh, political strategy, I suppose. The other element of it. The other element of it is that. I think the, the BBC, because it tries to maintain a certain responsibility towards accuracy and towards balance that isn't reflected in the private press, from people who are used to a particular type of political culture with, within a right-wing dominated um, media system, the BBC looks closer to something like The Guardian. Because it's, it's I, I mean, is it a liberal organization? Well, it, it's committed to certain standards of accuracy in reporting, a certain sort of professional ethos that just isn't shared by organizations like The Sun, The Daily Mail, you know, which are really, you know, they're unprofessional, they're completely unscrupulous, they will more or less, you know, fabricate certain stories. The BBC doesn't do that, like, um, or at least in, in most cases, the BBC doesn't fabricate things. Often it will echo inaccurate stories, but it takes the idea of, with some exceptions, takes the idea of like accuracy pretty seriously. So it does have a distinct kind of journalistic culture that's different to the majority of the right-wing press. Now, I think from the perspective of the right, a lot of the rights, a lot of the rights kind of political potency does drive from what essentially amounts to propaganda, like misrepresenting certain issues. So, you know, the obvious examples of things like you know, scare stories around Muslims, um, immigration, and so on. This does rely on on an in, inaccurate accounts of the world, and the BBC generally will not propagate them with the same sort of willingness that the Daily Mail does or the Sun does. So, my own view is that it's a combination of these two things, right? BBC looks very out of step with the dominant media culture that you alluded to earlier, um, and also there is a certain sort of and related to that, I think there is a certain sort of social liberalism that people on the hard right take issue with. But you'll, you'll note what they don't claim is that the BBC is generally, is that the BBC is sort of left wing in the sense that, you know, a, a socialist would understand those terms, right? So generally speaking, it's seen as being this kind of political spectrum between like from liberalism on the one hand to like a, a social conservatism on the other, basically. I mean, that point you made about the, the broader media ecosystem in this country, I mean, I mean, if we compare ourselves to the United States, for example, whilst everyone will be familiar with the likes of Fox News and right-wing broadcasters where they don't have the same broadcasting rules that this country uh, currently has, which in theory, well, we'll see what, what that means for GB News in practice. But uh, but what what that in this country, we have such an aggressive right-wing press compared to newspapers in the US, which tend to be centrists rather than right-wing broadcasters so it's, it's a different ecosystem mm -hmm. altogether and that has a big impact doesn't it on the bbc's coverage because the bbc you know if you listen to the day program which sets the tone for broadcasting on the bbc for each day that's very much shaped by the priorities of the newspapers that day what's on the front pages and of course the vast majority of those newspapers are very openly very partisan in in their often high progressive partisan support for the conservatives so that then has a very big impact on the bbc's own political coverage yeah definitely i mean but what, what tends to happen there as you said it's more of an agenda setting sort of function so if you look at research on this what if say in an election period for example the ability what the bbc won't be doing would be sort of or not generally doesn't do i mean sometimes does they, they will they will repeat stories because these are seen in some sort of political politically neutral way as being what the what what the story is you know that isn't seen by the bbc generally as being understood as being a political thing they kind of take the broader media ecosystem for granted um usually the 
tone of the way that they report and the kinds of things they report will be different to how it appears in the right-wing press. But what they are, do seem to be very good at and what gives the Conservatives a particular political advantage is the ability of the press to, to, to define what the particular stories are. So the, there was a study that was done by Cardiff University looking at the 2015 election and then they looked at the political priorities of the public and then they looked at the political priorities of the press. And what they found was that the BBC, BBC in terms of the scope of its reporting, in terms of the issues that were given most, most prominence, reflected not what people cared about, i.e. what the public cared about according to the polling, but what the press was, what the press cared about and what was seen as priorities by the press. So that, that, they're, they're part of a broader sort of news ecosystem, which, as you say, is, is dominated by the right. Um, they're, they tend to cover those stories rather differently in, in terms of tone. Um, but the press can very effectively set the agenda. But the other thing is that, you know, the, the political agenda that appears in the press, you know, the press is an important part of that, but also you know, the, the political agenda also gets set by the kinds of people who are also in those revolving door positions. So like people, the person who, if, if you're director of comms at Downing Street, you have an incredible ability to be able to set the political agenda in alliance with, um, you know, interests in, in the press. And that's why, you know, this, I, I think this, this issue of the revolving door and particularly people moving in and out of uh, like political communications positions, which essentially is forms of political propaganda should concern people because, um, yes, the press has this incredible gender-setting function, but also it's it's the powerful interests in society, including those those political interests, which are really able to drive news coverage, not just in the press, but in the BBC. And that's why I think when we think about the BBC, you know, we can talk about the BBC sort of in isolation as 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 a as a, an institution with a particular history and a particular relationship to other interests in British society, but you have to think about it. Um, it, in terms of, as I say, like its relationship to other parts of British society, its relationship to the press, its relationship to the political elite, its relationship to the economic elites, and and all of that is kind of, has in quite complex ways like shape the the internal culture of the BBC. Um, and it's not even just about you know agenda setting, like the the, the very structure of the BBC, the the nature of um, how it allocates its resources, the kinds of jobs it has will influence how it reflects different interests in society. So like to give you an example of this, in the up until the 1980s and even the early 1990s, the BBC had a lot of labor and industrial correspondence. And their job was basically to report on um, not only the trade unions, but also the, the economic um, system from the perspective of jobs and um, employment, right? There was a very concerted shift that took place in the 1990s where these people just disappeared um, and they were replaced by business correspondents. Now, what that then creates in the BBC is people for whose job it is to go on TV and talk about the economy from a particular sort of perspective, right? And, and that perspective was, shares it was um to do with this idea of like business being wealth creators and so on so you can see how actually a certain way of viewing the world can change in terms of how the bbc allocates resources in terms of jobs that it creates in terms of the the internal structure so a lot of the research that i have done has looked at that process of of, of transformation that that took place at the bbc this is all part of the, the culture and structure of the BBC that then produces a certain a certain perspective on the world and allows certain voices to be highlighted and others to be relatively marginalised and, and then impacts on the political common sense. I mean, on that, the I mean, you mentioned uh, Cardiff University research on the BBC, and there was another piece of research they did quite a few years ago now, about ten years ago, that I think it stands. Uh, is it was about essentially. What it concluded was the BBC have an establishment bias. So as an example, they looked at appearances on the six o'clock news and um, business leaders, bosses, were 19 times more likely to appear than trade union leaders. And obviously the trade union movement is the biggest democratic movement in the country. It represents six million workers um, and yet 19 times less likely to appear than bosses. The other point, I mean, some of the other points they made kind of reflects what you just said as well, was if you take the financial crash, um, the Today programme, for example, would interview senior bankers as though they were impartial observers, witnesses. Yeah. Now, clearly during, I know, let's take the winter of discontent in the late 1970s. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Obviously, the BBC wasn't interviewing trade union leaders as here is a trade union expert to tell us impartially about what's going on in the trade union movement. They would prosecute them as though they were on the stand. And that's not what they did, for example, with senior bankers who were just there for their specialism rather than people who were seen as complicit. So the, the, that, that was some of the, I mean, that, that again, doesn't it reflects the coverage where they'll, you know, there's a, it's, it's deference almost to, to, to establishment figures as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you see this again and again with, with the BBC. I mean, you know, different parts of the BBC, different journalists, different programmes have different sort of um, styles. And, you know, it's a very large organisation and produces huge amounts of coverage. But the broad findings are pretty consistent. Um, Cardiff's done a huge amount of studies. And then going back before that, there were very influential Glasgow University as well. Uh, there's a lot of material. And actually, the, the BBC is... If anything, it's a hugely, I shouldn't say this as a, as a scholar of the BBC myself, but it's a, I think it's an over-researched organisation. There's, there's enormous amounts of data that you can draw on. Um, you know, there are institutions in British society don't know much about. Like, the BBC is not one of them. Um, it's, got, it's got a huge archive of, uh, of records. There's no real mysteries about the nature of the organisation. But there, there is a sort of silence in public life where that stuff just tends to not be drawn on. Um, so there was the... Cardiff did this breadth of opinion study, which I think might have been the first one that you were referring to, um, which was commissioned, in fact, by the BBC. Uh, they've done other studies looking at um, the representation of think tanks more recently, which found that the BBC was leaning towards the centre-right in terms of its balance of opinion. Um, you mentioned financial crisis, so excellent work by, by Mike Berry, also at Cardiff, looking at the representation of the financial crisis. It's worth, it's worth saying that, like, underneath that... Um, that, that, that sort of understanding of how you cover stories, of, of, of who, who speaks and how you speak to them, was a very conscious process of, of, of change at the BBC, of course change. And this is what my research has examined. Um, so if people are interested in this, they can, they can read more in my book. But there, there was a deliberate effort to shift the culture of the BBC and adjust it to the sort of post-factorate, you know, neoliberal, as it then later got called, um, consensus, that, that changed the BBC in a very determined way, away from a sort of statist organisation towards a market-orientated um, organisation. And, and this, I mean, this was sort of noted at the time when people didn't really understand uh, what was going on, but um, the, guy, the guy who did it, John, John Burt, uh, was... He was very close to the people at the Institute of Economic Affairs. Um, he, he was very close to Peter Jay, uh, James Callaghan's um, son-in-law for a period. who wrote the famous speech about not being able to spend labor to pay up the crisis. He later brought in Peter Jay to the BBC as the first economics editor. Now, what's quite interesting about this was that this represented the first, first sort of stage and that shift towards more business-orientated reporting. But Jay, interestingly, he, he didn't like the idea of business and economics being seen as the same thing, basically because although he saw the economy as like the sort of neutral thing to be managed. Now, that's rather different to how people in the social democratic period saw the economy, right? But it's sort of academic economist kind of perspective, right? The power disappears, the, the economy becomes just the sort of machine that you regulate in the public interest. But even he didn't like the idea of having business journalists because he thought that, that business is still a sectoral interest in society. The economy is the neutral thing that we can all manage, right? But gradually speaking, um, that perspective got marginalized and business just became economics and then just became the business and the economics unit. That's, that's how we ended up with that kind of bizarre situation in the after the financial crash where people who basically are sectoral interests in the economy were being treated as, as neutral experts. So that was the outcome of a, of a process of, of, of cultural change at the BBC, 
Um, another element of, of was precisely the marginalization of, of those trade union voices. But actually, when it when um, in, in the post-crash period so for the last 10 years, it hasn't just been the marginalization of um, working class voices and representatives of organized labor who've been marginalized. Even mainstream academic economists um, have been uh, relatively marginalized and at odds with the, the ways in which the economy is described to people um, in BBC reporting. So I think this, this brings us back to this question of bias, right? Um, and, and slightly how we understand this, this, the political spectrum. You know, if, if, if you think of um, society as basically in, um, in, in terms of power, then the pattern of the BBC's reporting is very, very clear. Um, if you approach it from the question of political partisanship, then then things start to look slightly different. And if you think of about things in terms of like a, I suppose, a purely sort of cultural um, difference between left and right, then again, the, the, the picture is slightly different. The way I've approached it, yeah, is as a sociologist thinking, okay, what, how do, what is the BBC's position in society, right? How does it relate to other interests in society? How does it relate particularly to power, centers of power in society? So business, um, we talked about that a little bit, and then the state. Now, I think with the state, I alluded to this earlier, but um, you, we, we've seen with the, the appointments process, the ways in which the BBC just simply does not have uh, any independence from the political elite, from, from the state. So. It would, the, so the, the the latest chair, as you mentioned, uh, Richard Sharp, you know, he's not just a conservative. Um, he's a conservative donor. He's a head of a very right wing conservative think tank that represents the right of the party. He's a former investment banker and Oxbridge PPE, like almost everybody who's important at the BBC. You know, his predecessor, David Clementi, who was seen as like, you know, against the Johnson faction in the government. He was also Oxbridge PPE and, uh, and, and also a former investment banker. Before him, we had Rona Fairhead, who was also a Tory, into the Tory government, worked at HSBC, worked at Pepsi Cola, um, like the current director general. So these are the kinds of people who are at the top of the BBC. Um, often they're not independent of the state because they're being appointed by the state, but they're also what you mentioned earlier, like this, this, this revolving door, which isn't just at the level of political journalism and political communication, at the upper level, you had the people at the board and the executives and the big decision makers. And and, and we know exactly who they are because they're, they're covered in several cases that the government has run on the Social Mobility Commission, for example, very similar sorts of backgrounds to other members of, of the British establishment. So there, there's the people. And there, as I mentioned earlier, there's the question of like the, the BBC's charter and the BBC's funding. So the BBC is, a, you know, it's a quasi, it has a quasi independence. You know, if the, if the government allows it to have independence, then it, c it can operate at a, as a sort of arm's length. Um, I, I think it's arguable, you can see the BBC as being a state broadcaster, a sort of quasi independent state broadcaster, you know, and actually, I, I forget who, who made this remark, but there was a, either the direct general chair in the late 1970s on the cusp of Thatcherism said, look, this, these powers of appointments, does make the BBC very vulnerable. There was a constitutional sort of convention, as is often the case in British public life, that you wouldn't you wouldn't use your your powers of appointment to stack the BBC full of people with partisan political positions, right? So you would keep it relatively balanced. The idea in a social democratic period was, like broadly speaking, the BBC has to represent the breadth of opinion amongst the elite. Basically, that's kind of what the BBC tried to do. What conservative governments have tended to do is, is take the political opportunities that they have to push the BBC further to the right. So that's what, that's what we're seeing now. Uh, uh, an organisation which has never really been independent, it's never really reported impartially, but which has been pushed further and further um, to, to the political right um, and away from like where the centre of gravity of the public are to work towards a, um, yeah, a, a further marginalisation of, uh, of its independence and impartiality. Before I finally ask you about kind of is the BBC reformable, I suppose, just interested just a bit more in terms of your thoughts on the BBC's political coverage and the nature, the assumptions underpinning its political coverage. Peter Oborn, who traditionally hails from the conservative side of politics, um, wrote an article for The Guardian during the 2019 general election, which looked at uh, the BBC's so-called mistakes and how they always happen to be mistakes which penalised Labour and helped uh, the Conservatives. And there was a particularly, I mean, there was a very notorious moment in the 2019 uh, election 
when uh, Lord Kunisberg, amongst other broadcasters, by the way, not just confined to the BBC, reported as a fact that a Labour activist had punched one of Matt Hancock's advisors in the head. Um, mm. That turned out to be completely untrue. Uh, and the reason we found out, the only reason we, we could see it wasn't true was with our own eyes, because footage then appeared which showed nothing of the sort happened at all. Whilst at the same time, during the general election campaign, two Labour activists in their 70s were violently assaulted, um, including one of them who was hospitalised with suspected cracked ribs by people yelling at them that they were Marxists and so on. And that wasn't reported barely at all in the British media. I mean, I mean that was just one example. But I mean, how do you understand the nature of the BBC? I mean, a lot of it as well, it's very soap opera-like, isn't it? It's not mm-hmm. looking at politics in a wider social and economic context. It's it's who's up and who's down, and it's based on individuals, and it's based on sources in Downing Street who senior political editors spent a huge amount of time. I mean, it's, you know, they will go to dinner with each other. They will they're in their WhatsApp groups. They you know they they're socialised. It's been known that in the past that you know, political journalists and politicians go on holiday with each other and even are godfathers or godmothers to each other's children. Uh, so mm. that's obviously part of it. But what, how do you understand, that was me babbling, what, what, how do you understand BBC political coverage? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that's, a, I think you're right in broad terms. I mean, if, if, if we're being very generous and we look at how influential figures at the BBC describe their own role, like say figures like Laura Koonsberg or, or Nick Robinson, it is essentially... They're, they're trying to explain the mechanisms of the, the the formal political system to to viewers. That's how they see their job. Um, they think politics, and like you and I do, think that politics is important, but they have a particular conception of what politics is and where it occurs. And they see their role basically as revealing the inner workings of, of, of those political institutions and players to the public and then trying to infuse um, a, an, an understanding of, uh, to create enthusiasm and understanding of that, of, of that game, if you like, um, for, for members of the public. I mean, the way that um, Nick Robinson described, I think it was Nick Robinson, was like, um, yeah, lifting the veil on the political um the, the political world but the way that my friend dan hein described it was like lifting the curtain on a political a political theater basically of, of basically taking all of the working assumptions of formal politics um and and then becoming kind of embedded in that world which is essentially you know is is they, they see it as, re- as revealing something which which the players want to be remain hidden but actually what tends to re- happen and, and this is a difficulty i think in all kinds of journalism how do you relate to your sources how do you get information and and how do you and and how do you deal with that question of proximity because as a journalist it's always useful to have sources um but obviously you want to maintain a critical distance now i think we have to understand this type of reporting in the context of the problem broad problems of journalism and not just the the, the sort of political past partisanship that we have in the press but also the role of political pr and political communications because what happens with these kinds of people like robbie gibb is that they're managing this this news process you know and that's why i think it's useful to think of it as, as theater because it's not like when Laura Koonsberg or Nick Robinson or whoever it is, or, or, or Peston at ITV, like reveals things that they've received on WhatsApp group, they're, they might be making things difficult for some political players, but they're basically accepting, yeah, this, this, this broad, um, yeah, they're, 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 they're focusing on a particular set of people and institutions. And they're saying, look, this is, this is where politics takes place, right? Now, I think what's interesting about that in the context of the way that Labour, when uh, Labour was led by Jeremy Corbyn, was treated by the BBC, was that you had somebody who I think was very much at odds with the with the, the core political culture of the BBC occupying that position of power. So the question became, you know, how was the BBC going to deal with that? Um, these are political players that they didn't really know very well. Uh, they were previously kind of marginal figures. But the key thing I think was with Jeremy Corbyn is that his uh, the, and, and the movement behind him was that it was it was anti-austerity. So that was one thing, and that was very much that was very much part of the BBC's sort of cultural DNA, if you like. The the that they, they created the groundwork through what we just what we were talking about earlier in terms of the economics reporting for the way that the Tories positioned themselves. So a certain understanding of the economy was uh, pretty central to the BBC by the time that Corbynism kicked off. Now, the other thing was like, um, you know, Jeremy Corbyn's record on anti-imperialism and questions of British foreign policy. You know, the BBC has always been very much um, 
very much part of like a, that formal world around the you know the British security state. So up until the 1980s, people who worked at the BBC were vetted by MI5. Uh, if you work on the sort of defence beat, you develop very close relationships to you know the MOD. So the, Jeremy Corbyn and Corbynism was kind of at odds with number one that kind of political consensus and that political world of Westminster to some degree. They were outsiders. Um, and then politically, they were also at odds with certain ways of understanding Britain's role in the world and certain ways of understanding the economy. And I think that was a culture shock for the BBC. And I think the way that they essentially handled that was to defer to what then became the sort of common sense of all political commentary, uh, not just, not just in, in the right wing press, was that these people are basically interlockers. And they they were, in my view, and this is more my view, by the way, rather than being based on, on, on research and corporatism, although there is some work on that, um, that really did defi define the nature of the coverage. And as you say, there were a lot of, there were a lot of um, let's call them gaffes or errors at the BBC, which always tended to be moving in one direction. And I think when you have an institution with a certain type of culture, um, the, the way this tends to be handled in, in public discussions is, is it a conspiracy or a cock-up? Well, if you have an organization with a collective culture and all of the cock-ups go in one direction, that doesn't tell you that it wasn't a cock-up. It just tells you that the way things are set up, the, 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 predominant, the way the predominant culture is, the way that certain editorial oversight is, is practiced, um, if the errors all move in one direction, that tells you something, I think, about, about, the, about the collective culture. And I think you know, the, the kind of errors um, in the last general election, to some extent, um, speak for themselves. But I think it's important to put them in the broader, in the context of the broader empirical scholarly evidence that we've been discussing, which is basically the political orientation of the BBC, not only towards the centre-right, but towards centres of power in society, which um, which the left is essentially in in confrontation with. And so I think I think we did see that, and I think it was quite difficult for the BBC to to navigate that um, to 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 orientate itself towards certain institutions which had generally been seen as legitimate, right? The Labour Party as being you know part of the um, part of formal politics, to, um, taking on the kind of character and orientation which 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 was very much at odds with with, with some of those kind of centres of power in society. Finally, the BBC, is it reformable and how? And how is it how can we transform our media ecosystem? Yeah, I mean it's a very big question. I mean, one thing I would say about the BBC is, you know, I'm I mean, I'm not particularly a critic of the BBC. I just want people to see the BBC as it is rather than like how they would imagine it to be. And and I think if we can recognize the institution, if we can understand why it does what it does, that then we can get onto the question of, okay, well, how could we do it differently? And I think there is this sort of tendency for people to be very defeatist and fatalistic at the BBC, look at it and say, look, this is, you know, I often get this on Twitter, like people saying, oh, you know, this is an institution that's run by Tories, it's part of the establishment, and so on, and so on. And, you know, this is something that's occurred to me before. But the, the thing is, there are specific reasons why it does what it does, right? So I think that's really important for people to grasp, like, to not, to, to not sort of imagine, okay, you know, the BBC's done this, you know, to hell with the whole organisation. BBC, for all its faults, first of all, does embody, however it practices another question, but does embody a certain values that I think the left should should value. Number one is accuracy in news reporting. I don't think we just, I don't think, you know, people should think of media in terms of, oh, left media writ large. I think the, the notion of impartiality, although it can't in any abstract way be like, you know, implemented, like, you know, there's no, there's no sort of God's eye view of society where you can treat everything impartially. I think the aspiration to reflect a range of opinion fairly and accurately is a very good one. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a good basis for journalism. It's a good basis for, for democratic politics. So I think that value is important. I think the value of independent media is important. So my own view is that, that there's very straightforward things we could do if we were in a position to implement it. First of all, you get rid of all of those, um, immediate and obvious limitations to its independence. So um, the appointment system where, where the government can appoint people to the board, uh, the, the process whereby the, the government can renew the BBC's charter, the control over the license fee, the, the, these are all things that keeps basically the, the politicized hierarchy at the top of the BBC on a short leash um, and, and can, can shape the BBC's culture. So they limit the BBC's independence, we have to get rid of all of that. But there's a lot more we could do. and. Um, 
I, I think uh, on, on the left, we need to be starting having this sort of discussion as to what kind of public media ecosystem we want. So at the Media Reform Coalition, we're on the vice chair, we're currently running running a campaign called the BBC and Beyond, where we're asking people to contribute to this conversation about what do we, what kind of media do we want? What kind of public media do we want? Not thinking just about the problems with the BBC, but how might we reimagine the BBC and other public media organizations for a very different media? Now, I have my own ideas about what that might like to look like. I think that one big problem with the BBC is it's, um, it's a very managerial hierarchical organization. And when it's been, at its most independent and its most creative and its most politically vibrant, it was probably in the 1960s. I mean, some people you can make an argument about that, but that's what most um, most historians suggest that would be the golden age of the BBC. There are a few reasons for that. Britain was becoming more equal. Um, there were younger people moving to um, program making roles. The BBC had grown very quickly, which meant that the, man the management basically didn't know what was going on in different places. They were buying up, um, studios which are a long way from the managerial hierarchy but also because of the of colored television they um they had a lot of money so they didn't have to, and there was no there wasn't much inflation so they didn't have to keep going back to the government and asking for more money so all of these things can show you how actually very sort of contingent conditions can lead to much more effective not just journalism which is what's been a focus of the conversation today but also um you know broader sort of creative um creative work, you know, educational stuff, um, drama and so on and so on, which, you know, is in parts of the BBC that I tend to talk about, which, which are very, very, very important. So what that tells you is that you can change the organizational structures of the BBC and get something quite different. And actually, that's exactly what the Thatcherites did. They very consciously and deliberately changed the structure of public media in this country and, and changed its institutional culture. So we need to be thinking about how we do the same. Now, my view is that you need to break up that editorial hierarchy. You need to be have like um, the BBC very radically devolved so that you would have people making independent decisions about journalism locally. Um, so the BBC is also very London centric, like the right goes on and on about that with certain political arguments attached to it, but that's genuinely true. Um, and insofar as it's moved out of London, which is positive steps, it's, tend it's tended to be to, to certain sort of um, locations. I think we'd want the BBC to be much more devolved. I think we'd have to keep it universal. We'd have to think about it as being more of a digital platform than, than a broadcaster, right? So one thing we've not talked about is the role of, and the danger of, of big tech and the need for the left to be thinking seriously about how we would make an intervention in that before these enormous corporations in uh, Silicon Valley basically control every aspect of our cultural and community infrastructure. So. Um, I think the BBC would have to be devolved. I think it would have to be digital. I think it would have to be universal. And this is really crucial because the thing that makes public media different to private media is you don't need to monetize the product. So you don't need to exclude anybody, but also it doesn't have to pander towards certain demographics. So, you know, somewhere like The Guardian, where you write, you know, there's particular types of audiences which will be built into a business model. Um, and that's much more, even more striking if you look at something like the Financial Times, right? The reason why the Financial Times is the kind of journalism it does is it because it has a particular type of niche audience that it, that it, that it markets towards. So it needs to be universal. It needs to be digital. It needs to have those public values embedded in what it does and it needs to be politically independent and i would go a bit further to say that it needs to be democratized right so you could you can't if you can't have the government making decisions about who runs the bbc then the public needs to be much more profoundly involved in it and that means introducing democratic processes but not just appointing people to the top of the bbc but building a much more organic relationship between the bbc's audiences and the people who produce its, its programs so that i think has to be things like experiments in in public democratic commissioning um in building up like audience panels um in in building local relationships with independent producers maybe something similar to what was developed at channel four in at, at its the height of its kind of um cultural and journalistic output so i think it could be a host of different things i think it, if we start to think seriously about this and i really encourage all of your listeners to to read about this and to contribute towards the conversation it becomes really important because in 2027 could be the end of the bbc or it could be the end of the bbc as we know it um there will be a new charter there could be a new government the, the important thing right now isn't just to simply defend the bbc on the basis of how it is uh, i think the bbc does need to be defended on on a certain basis but the left needs to offer a critic a critique 
think of the BBC, like not just questioning the nature of its reporting, some of the elements we've talked about, but a positive vision of how that we could we could remake the BBC and we could remake the media and address some of the problems we've been talking about. So it could be a, a genuinely um, democratic, functional media system, but also a cultural producer, you know, someone that would be able to enrich the cultural life of not just people in the UK, but around the world, because I would like everything the BBC does to be freely available to everybody, ultimately. I think that, that's what's, that's the exciting possibility of, of, of public media. Actually, it can be very, very efficient, um, much more efficient model than the capitalist model where you have to exclude certain people from consumption, you have to watch crappy adverts, um, and, and so on. So, sorry, but talk for a long time. That, that, those are just some ideas uh, that, that I have, and I, I hope that others will, will contribute to the conversation over the next few years. Sorry, Tom. I, I, I bumped myself out. I'm back. Hello, can you hear me? Yep. Yeah, great. Um, Tom, sorry, I don't know what happened there. It all went wrong. It, all, it was a slight malfunction. But what a tour de force. That was a real masterclass. I don't know how you ended there. I don't know what, I don't know if you finished the sentence. Because I did was, finish, yeah. Don't worry. It was quite an abrupt ejection on my part. That happened once. I had Michael Walker from Navarra and Paul Mason on, and... I was kicked off by the internet and Michael just took over the show. It was just, he, he launched a coup d'etat and, uh, <laughs> that, and that was that. It became his show. But they carried on. They carried on just nattering away. Had him with Robert Lindsay as well, bless him. And um, he was very confused, but we got there. Anyway, Tom, that was brilliant. Thank you so, so much. Everyone, whatever you're doing now, stop within reason and buy Tom's book. The myth, uh, the BBC Myth of the Public Service. It is absolutely excellent, based on uh, a huge amount of evidence, um, and 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 I think that's what's, I think that's what's important because there is this, you know, the logical fallacy which we started with, which is if the BBC is critiqued from both directions, then it's doing its job, which is, which is a logical fallacy. Um, but Tom, thank you so so much, and uh, people do follow him on Twitter as well. Um, and read his many brilliant articles. But Tom, really appreciate it. And uh, enjoy the rest of your Sunday. Speak soon. Um, so, a couple of things before I go. Um, yeah, sorry about ejecting myself there. It was all kicking off. That's that's the way we roll sometimes. Just occasionally, I do. I am a bit amateurish. Um, I now have to go sort of my phone because yesterday some ne'er-do-well covered in lycra on a bike just snatched my phone off me. Uh, which is the third time it's happened in six years. Uh, on the, it's around Islington. It seems to be a, a thing. I tweeted about it, and um, yeah, I'm currently trending as a result. Some people are angry at me, as far as I can tell, for having my phone stolen. A Liberal Democrat councillor for London Bridge and West Bermondsey, Damien O'Brien, says, do you think you should maybe stop using your phone on the street? Slow learner. So there we go. Lib Dem, Lib Dem, don't, don't go to the Lib Dem if you get your phone nicked because they'll just say it's your fault. Uh, but otherwise, I'm trending because of the, that and that's caused people to be very angry about various different targets, me, um, Muslims, lots of racism going on. The guy was white. I see people seem to be under the misconception that um, otherwise. Um, and uh, people going on about Sadiq Khan, communism, all I'd say is it's a, it's a bank holiday weekend. Look at your life. Look at your choices. If you're angry at a journalist for having his phone stolen in the street. But I'm going to ring it E now and see if I can get a new phone. Oh, I'm going to use this as, you know, I'd obviously allow other guests. I've just plugged a guest book. And I'm going to plug my own bloody book now, if you don't mind me doing so. Uh, it's just come out in paperback, This Land, The Struggle for the Left. Uh, it's the book that came out last year. It has a different new title. It's got a new chapter in it as well. Um, and I think this is particularly relevant this week, given the elections and the by-election that are taking place, because, and the reason the reason I think it's relevant is, uh, I mean, what the book does is look at the Corbyn leadership over its entire period. It looks at, you know, what it represented politically, where it came from. Uh, it looks at what it was up against. It look at, looks at what it got wrong. But the reason I think this is particularly relevant is the 2017 election has been systematically airbrushed out of existence as though it never happened. Now, I know before some of you groan, Labour did not win that election and the Conservatives in Hong Parliament were able to maintain power. I know that. But what's striking about the 2017 election is 
Labour got 40% of the vote, the highest share since 2001, and increased seats for the first time, uh, well, since, what, 1997? Um, And obviously then in 2019, Labour suffered a catastrophic defeat. Um, It won a higher vote share than under Brown and Miliband, but under First Past the Post, it's the seats you win, and the seats were the lowest since 1935. Um, But I think what, you know... It's possible to accept that Labour clearly did not win the 2019, 2017 election, but also, and, and, to, and to look at what reasons for that were, but to also go, why did Labour have its biggest vote increase in vote share since 1931? Uh, sorry, 1945, get that right, since 1945. Uh, why did it have its biggest vote share since uh, since 2001? Uh, why did it have a, its highest vote share in England since 1997? And one of the reasons that's important, I think, is if we look at the Hartlepool by-election, um, which, you know, a, a lot of people suspect Labour may end up actually losing in the end. Um, and that's what some polling seems to be suggesting is, well, the only reason it was because obviously Hartlepool was won twice in a general election under Jeremy Corbyn. And, and uh, you know, Oppositions do not lose by-elections to governments. Uh, it's only happened twice in the last 50 years. And in by-elections, you're supposed to do better than a general election because people are more in the mood to be protesting about the government and so on. Uh, so, it, But if Keir Starmer's Labour does lose Hartlepool, which was retained by Labour under Jeremy Corbyn, they're going to blame the predecessor. And they're going to say, well, in 2019, there was this big Brexit party vote and that's the only reason that uh, Labour didn't win, uh, didn't lose the seat. But why that doesn't make sense is in in 2015 under Ed Miliband, Hartlepool became a marginal seat and lots of people voted for UKIP. And in 2017, Theresa May's team expected all of those UKIP voters just to march into the Tory column. Now, a lot of UKIP voters did vote for the Tories in 2017, but also a lot of them voted for the Labour Party. And Hartlepool's a striking example for that because it is a leave seat. It voted heavily to leave the European Union. And that upsets the whole narrative of the reason uh, Labour uh, did much better than expected in 2017 was because Remainers flocked to the party. That's not what the polling afterwards suggested. Uh, The issue of Brexit was way down the list of Labour voters in 2017 before the nation polarised heavily on the issue, which is where we came to in 2019. And obviously, we've got to look at the fact that in 2017, the policies, the manifesto, as at the time, Labour MPs who were not Jeremy Corbyn supporters, acknowledged and accepted, played a massive role in that surge in the vote. A clear vision, which, which you know, for the many, not the few, challenging the fact that wealth and power is concentrated in the hands of a few and, and arguing that it should be redistributed in order to invest in the economy and services, that people shouldn't be penalised uh, for going to university by being, by being saddled with debt, that the rich should be taxed in order to invest in creaking public services, that there should be a genuine living wage, that utilities and services should be publicly owned. That was popular. And there is this attempt at year zero to just scrub out of existence that it never happened. Nothing can be learned from it except how disgraceful and politically diabolical the Corbyn period was, the end. And obviously that... If you look now at Labour in the polls, even, I mean, some polls have suggested Labour have actually improved their position, which you'd kind of ex- kind of hope, given the government's embroiled in a massive sleaze and corruption, sc- multiple corruption scandals. But also, uh, despite the fact it's true the vaccination programme has boosted the government, um, delivered by the NHS, it should be noted, not by the government, um, the fact that Keir Starmer's team bet the house on competence was clear as a dividing line was clearly an error because of the vaccination program then destroys it rather than having a dividing lines on vision because they allowed the Tories to get away with the, one of the most catastrophic handlings of the pandemic on earth with one of the worst death tolls and death rates. Uh, and that they haven't managed to stick that on the government, which is why the government got away with it. So I think what we should be learning from, from the past is what went wrong with the Corbyn area. And I do do that in the book but also what went right and what can be learned from. And that includes the fact that those policies and ideas are popular and the attempt to abandon them when you look at how badly Labour are doing in the polls and Labour don't have a, I mean, 
no one thinks Labour has a clear vision at all at the moment. They have no clear sense of what they want to do with power. And that is cutting through. I found that in Hartlepool. And that video will be out this week. So you can see for yourselves what I found in Hartlepool. Right, that's that. I'm going to sort out my phone. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining. We've got loads of interviews and videos coming up next week, including the Hartlepool documentary. Uh, that was brilliant today with Tom, a real masterclass on the truth about the BBC. Uh, we'll be live again next Sunday at 12 o'clock. Do enjoy your bank holidays and I will see you during the week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.